This is Challenge Extended, the adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Disabled Sports USA. I'm your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Challenge Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Challenge Extended provides an opportunity to share the personal stories of our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. My guest today is retired U.S. Army First Lieutenant Cameron Kerr. Cameron was deployed with the 101st Airborne Division to Afghanistan, and in February of 2011, with just one month left in his deployment, Cameron stepped on an IED, resulting in the loss of his left leg below the knee and earning him a Purple Heart. In December 2011, just nine months after his injury, Cameron relearned to snowboard as an amputee with Disabled Sports USA. It launched him into other adventures most people would only dare to undertake. In fact, this past January, he continued to redefine disability and disabled veterans with a trek to Antarctica by skiing the last 60 nautical miles to the South Pole with the 2041 Foundation. Before we talk to Cameron, we actually have a special guest, and that is Robert Swan, the founder of the 2041 Foundation. He was the first explorer to visit both the North and South Pole and created the foundation, which looks to bring attention to the preservation of Antarctica beyond the year 2041, when the continent is no longer protected by a treaty. Poor equipment, poor knowledge, and somehow they made it, or some didn't make it. So I was inspired as a young person by the place, Antarctica, a continent twice the size of Australia. Nobody owns it. And I think, personally, we should protect it forever and leave it alone. And I was inspired uh, to go and become, as a kid, the first person to walk, ski, to both poles, north and south. And it was a huge battle to raise the money. No one believed in me. Everybody (laughs) laughed at me. My family talked in terms of counselling and psychiatric help. They still do, but they did more then. But somehow, through it all, I held on to that simple dream of being able to walk, ski 900 miles to the South Pole and then 700 miles to the North. And I didn't do it. We did it. So a team of three went to the South Pole and a team of seven went to the North Pole. And we did it. I didn't. And at the end of those journeys... I, on the South Pole, for listeners, it was very hard in those days, 30 years ago. You didn't have radios, you didn't have GPS, you didn't have backup, nothing. Right. So I lost, I think, 68 pounds in body weight in 70 hmm. days of pulling sledges to the pole. But it was a dream, and I did become that person <laughs> to walk to both poles and said, definitely, to everybody, I will never, ever, ever do this again. And didn't hang my skis up. I bolted them to the wall and said, enough's enough. But then in life, as you well know, uh, things can change. And I was drawn back to uh, going back to the South Pole again. And um, there was quite a story in that itself over the last uh, two years. Hmm. And so you you, you can certify that you're not crazy then. <laughs> um, I, I think that people always call anybody that's willing to try something possibly a bit crazy. And certainly I'm sure Cameron with you know one leg 
Um, it's called Crazy to come and join me. But the setup for this was very interesting because my son, who knows Cameron very well, uh, Barney, said to me about three or four years ago, he said, Dad, I'm sick of being Robert Swan's son. <laughs> you know, Sir Robert Swan, blah, blah, blah. I want to have my own journey. Mm. So, Dad, will you come with me and make a journey to the South Pole? And I said, OK, I'll come. So I came literally at the age of 61 out of retirement to make this journey. And I'm a bit smashed up walking to both poles. You know, my back's not very good. My knees aren't too good. And I didn't know that I had problems with my hip. So Barney and I uh, and Kyle and another um, Martin set off for the South Pole. We had 600 miles to go. And if we made it over 33 years, I would have crossed the whole of Antarctica um, from one side to the other. It's not something that most people do. It's over 1,500 miles in total mm. distance. And cut a long story short, after 300 miles two years ago, my left hip disintegrated and I couldn't carry on, which for me was something that many listeners have faced, but I'd never faced that. Um, I'd failed. I couldn't keep going and my body had let me down and that's what I thought at the time and my son carried on finished getting to the South Pole and I said hang on a minute I'm going to finish this journey so the expedition that <clears throat> I've just been on was called the last 300 to do those last 300 miles to the pole to complete the crossing of Antarctica and at the same time I thought well I'd really like to involve a special team and in our own small way give something back because I'm being really honest here I've always been lucky physically, um, perhaps not so lucky mentally, but physically I, I've been okay. I've done some incredible things and touched wood. I'd never had something give out on me. So it was a big thing for me mm. to think, hang on a minute. I remember Cam, who'd come on our expedition to the South Pole, um, sorry, not to the South Pole, but to the edge of Antarctica on our ship as one of our leaders. And I thought, hang on a minute, I best get in touch with Cam and see if he'd like to make this journey of the last 60 miles to the South Pole called the last degree. To put that in perspective, it's one of the hardest things an untrained person can do anywhere on Earth. It really is the ultimate of, of test mm -hmm. just to fly in and do that. So it became the dream to do the last 300 miles, but 60 miles from the pole, Cam, my son, and a, a small team of people would fly in and join me to hopefully celebrate the success of having crossed Antarctica and celebrate the success of what I knew Cam would do. I asked Cam to do it. He, I think, took three seconds to say yes, because it's him. I think his wife, Natasha, was less impressed by the idea of Cam doing this. Uh, and that was the plan. So I set off for the pole at the beginning of December... 2019 and all was going well and I was 40 miles away from meeting Cam and my artificial hip literally blew out of the socket mm. and I could not get it back in and 40 miles after 33 years 1,460 miles of sledge pulling I was 40 miles out from completing the mission and meeting Cameron so I couldn't join him for those last 60 miles but they did fly in I met them at the base camp while I was wandering around with a bad hip and 
Cameron went on with the team and completed that journey. And I think what's really important about all this, I think some people listening will think, bloody hell, you know, Rob Swan walked to both poles. It all seems a big deal, but it's not, actually. That I've worked out in life that <clears throat> every step you take is a step in the right direction. And every step you take is a step. It's not a step going back, it's a step going forward. Mm -hmm. And all my life, you know, I've made these big journeys, but these big journeys are one step at a time. You never think you're going to reach the pole when you've got 900 miles of pulling a sledge. You don't think about, you think about the end of the day. You think about lunchtime. And I think what Cameron's story is all about for me, and I'm so proud of him, and I'm so proud, you know, of the, of the War Fighters sports campaign and everything, all that he stands for, is that Cameron is capable of saying to people, look, don't panic. <laughs> You're lying there thinking possibly after an injury or an injury you've had all your life or maybe just a setback in life. I've just faced the worst setback of my life. 40 miles away from completing a mission, I go, I'm blown out. But guess what? I'm going back next year and I'm doing those bloody, bloody last 40 miles. Why? Because I said I was going to do it. And what Cam's all about, <clears throat> what I see in his story, is that what he's done after his injury and his loss of a limb is that he's just carried on. He's got the most fantastic wife on the planet, Natasha. <laughs> he's built his own house, one of these great mm -hmm. mini homes that's all powered on renewable energy. He's run marathons. He's done incredible things. And his story is saying, look, don't panic. You can get through anything. And I think you know, on, on the environment and looking after our world, which is important to everybody, mm -hmm. that Cam's a person that's willing to say, hey, you know something? Maybe I might have a leg still had the people in Afghanistan been using more renewable energy. I might not have been delivering trucks when a roadside bomb took me out. Um, and his house is an example of, of running things on renewable energy. And I'm so proud of being associated with people like you, the organization here, CAM especially, mm -hmm. because I think all of us in rather a negative world, let's be honest, open the newspapers, watch TV. It doesn't take much, right? <laughs> it doesn't take much to go, ooh, this is all terrible. So what we actually need are really good, positive stories uh, that inspire people to say, hang on a minute, I can do this. And it might be a really small thing to begin with, but that small thing, another step, another step, another step, and it's all about believing that you can and also asking other people for help. And... On my journey recently, I had two fantastic uh, ladies with me, Johanna and Katinka, who are some of the preeminent polar explorers on the planet. And I didn't feel bad when I felt weak to give them a couple of pounds of my sledge weight. Mm. So I didn't feel bad. You know, we were a team. We were moving it forward. Sadly, 40 miles out, you know, I, I blew out. But I'm going to go back um, next year and um, finish that job. So... I'm so proud and really <clears throat> want to make sure that we move things forward. And actually, this November in 2020, we're again involving somebody um, from this world. Um, 
Eleanor. Is it Eleanor? Alana. Alana. Yeah. Um, and yeah. she's coming as one of our leaders for a team of young people that we're taking to the Antarctic. Because I hate things that are here today and gone tomorrow. I like mm-hmm. continuity, sustainability, and a great story. So I'm delighted to be here, and um, I look forward to a continued association with CAM uh, to take this forward. And just a couple of follow-up questions. First of all, I appreciate you, you talking about how important it is to ask for help. But so for, for the folks that may not be familiar with, you know, the last degree, we're talking essentially latitude and longitude sort of, right? So we're talking about from the 89th, I understand, yeah. uh, to the 90th is, the, is that last degree, correct? Yes. And can you talk about maybe the... And you also mentioned, so as part of my follow-up question, you also mentioned that as one of the most difficult things. So can you talk about you know, the, 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 the train and what people, um, would experience or obviously have experienced, you know, in that, in that one degree on, on one, well, on our I, map, if you will. I can describe it very easily. And Cam knows this now. It's a bit like saying that you've never driven a car in your life. And the first time you ever drive a car, you're taken to, you know, the Indianapolis 500, and you're told to get in one of those cars and drive it. It's, it's the ultimate of polar travel. Mm. It's the big time. And a lot of people spend many, many years trying to experience what it's like to do that last degree. There's so no room for error. There's no room for error. Antarctica is a beautiful place, but it wants you dead from the day you <laughs> arrive until the day you leave. And if you forget that, you mm-hmm. won't come home. So it's not quite like going into combat, but it is a very, very, very hard place to go because you're flying in to a temperature of minus 40, and that might be wind chill factor or it could be still chill factor, it could be no chill factor, but it's bloody cold. You're in one of the coldest, driest, windiest places on the planet, and you're flying in to 10,000 feet above sea level, which is a lot in the real world, mm-hmm. but at the South Pole on your body, because of how the world uh, is with its ionosphere and the pressures there, that sometimes on your body that can be equivalent to 15, 16, 17,000 feet physically, and you're just standing there, you haven't started walking yet. And the surface, when it, the average, I'm sorry, I'm not American on, I'll try and work it out, but the average yearly temperature at the South Geographic Pole is approximately minus 68, 69 Fahrenheit average. So you're, you're going to a place where it's so cold that the surface of the snow, as Cameron found out, feels like sand. Mm. It's so cold that the surface, the snow, turns into tiny little crystals, which again makes moving your skis, Mm -hmm. pulling your sledge very, very hard. And it's completely flat, 360. There are no mountains. There are sometimes a little bit of humps in the snow where wind's blown it. Uh, And every day you put your gear on. The most dangerous thing of polar travel is to get too hot. But if you get too hot you're going to be really badly damaged. So you have to have, and it wasn't a problem for Cam, but you have to be, have a rule, be bold, start cold. (laughs) And that's easier to say, but you're standing there and maybe somebody's, you know, 
bit slow and they've lost their gloves or something, you're standing there absolutely freezing, hating somebody badly because they're holding you up because you've got to start cold and gradually warm up. If you get too hot, you're going to get sweat. It's so cold that sweat will turn to ice inside your clothes. You march for, let's say, an hour, stop, quite warm by then, hopefully, and then the cold seeps in, and after about five minutes, you want to get going again. You've had something to eat, eat, had something to drink, and then somebody else has lost their gloves, so you want to kill them because you're cold again. Then you start off, and you do that seven, eight, up to nine times a day, mm-hmm. and then it actually really starts then. Because, yeah, you've done the walking, but then you have to put your camp up. You have to put your tent up. You have to dig holes. You, Without being rude, you have to go to the loo. And we can't go to the loo and then just leave it there. Mm-hmm. So you have to go to the loo, have a poo inside a plastic bag, which is complicated here in, you know, Rockville. Mm-hmm. But it's damn complicated when it's minus 30 <laughs> and your fingers are dropping off. And I won't go into other details about why it might else fall off. So... That whole procedure is extremely exhausting. You then sleep, eat, get up, do the whole thing again, day after day after day. And for those uninitiated, it would be similar to somebody either driving a, you know, a Indianapolis 500 car or going to Mars. It's that different. It's like an entirely alien world. Indeed. I, I wish we could we could talk longer. I could talk to you for a long time. But thank you so much, not only for being with us today and being here, um, but just for what you do and for what you're, the, the, the mission and values that you're trying to, uh, and the importance that you're trying to express about, uh, obviously, the fragility of our world and the fragility of the Earth. Well, I'd end up by saying that, as I look around this room, may I've got my great friend here, Cam, who sadly won't escape from me. He's stuck with me, really, now. Uh, and I look around the pictures on the wall, and I see all these incredible people doing incredible things with, you know, one leg, you know, one arm. I mean, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. But you know something? Our world is in a survival situation. And if we don't understand that, it, it, we're not going to end up with a planet. The planet will survive, mm-hmm. but our participation on it won't. So what I look for... And people understand about survival, finding solutions. And that's one way to in, be involved in your world that I'm going to find fantastic champions like Cameron mm-hmm. who are going to stand up and say, we need to get our act together and do the right thing for our planet because we are in a survival situation and we understand that. So fantastic to be here. Cam, are you going to take over now, boy? So, Kevin, we had an opportunity just to talk to Rob a few minutes ago, um, or a couple seconds ago, actually. Um, so, first of all, what was it like to, you know, meet someone like him? I mean, in some regards, he's, you know, a legend in yes, terms yeah. of being the first person to reach uh, the, the North Pole and the South Pole. So, what, what is, how does it feel to kind of get to know him and, and to kind of be a part of, you know, one of his uh, projects and initiatives? I think to have a, a friend and a mentor like Rob is definitely a rare opportunity. Uh, people like him aren't, uh, in abundance mm-hmm. in the world. And he's to me and to a lot of people, he, he's kind of a dying breed of, or, or kind of the last remnant of that kind of early 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century explorer crop, mm-hmm. uh, or, or breed of, of gentlemen. So, 
he certainly embodies that and he, he lives that life, but he also translates it into his life mission, which is, which is obviously uh, not just polar preservation, but conservation and, and uh, promoting sustainable practices. So, yeah, meeting, meeting a guy like Rob. I met him back in 2011 mm-hmm. in preparation for the first expedition I went on uh, with him in 2012. Um, and that was a sea sea based. It was ex- yeah. We, expedition. We, it was a little more leisurely. Uh, we went on a uh, ship from Oshuaia, Argentina, which is one of the southernmost cities in the world, uh, down across the infamous Drake Passage mm-hmm. to the Antarctic Antarctic Peninsula, uh, which is where we did the expedition. It was outdoor learning, all focused on climate change, and, and his mission is taking people to the places where some of these symptoms of climate change are most evident uh, because obviously the poles are changing rapidly and and far ahead of where they should be. Uh, He describes them, and it's a useful analogy, but he describes them as as canaries in the coal mine. Uh, And they've been trying to warn us for Mm -hmm. for many years now, and we need to, to, to listen to them. But he takes people down there, and then we do outdoor learning, kind of, I mean, there's classroom uh, stuff on the beaches and we'll do little hikes and see glaciers and all that and it's to make it real for people and and to to make them care even more and to then go back and be ambassadors for the polar regions whether it's an expedition to the arctic uh, or the antarctic and um, to help kind of convey what we've learned and what we've seen and and be champions of our world uh, or advocates for for our our, uh, our earth, our planet, and um, this expedition, yeah, was a little different because it was a little <laughs> less cushy. That one we had nice little cabins and showers, and yeah, this was quite different. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, from that um, early expedition, what uh, you know, obviously, when you were invited or asked to participate in this particular expedition, what what you know, what kind of resonated with you, uh, in terms of wanting to, wanting to do, do go back again? Yeah. So when Rob, he, he invited me to participate on this last degree expedition. Uh, he approached me back in November, 2018, uh, because you need at least a year of prep and planning and, and, uh, acquiring gear and, and everything. And so when he asked, I, I, I think he mentioned I, said, I took about three seconds and obviously said <laughs> yes, uh, just because you can't say no to this type of stuff. Um, but we wanted it to be, and he touched upon this, but we wanted it to be a great opportunity to showcase what's achievable when, when you want it, uh, first of all. Second of all, to help be a small part of the discourse around wounded veterans mm-hmm. and veterans in general and to help counter some of the prevailing narrative that we see a lot of, uh, that we're all broken and damaged and burdensome and just kind of a pity party. Mm-hmm. And that's, as we know, pretty far from the actual truth. So to be a little bit of that, a little part of that conversation, uh, but also kind of to do the equivalent of what peer visitations did for me in the hospital uh, when I was laying on my butt as an inpatient uh, with a fresh amputation, and I had other amputees coming to visit me who had been who had been wounded uh, months prior, years prior, all, all kinds of situations. I had one who was a Korean War veteran uh, mm. who's now kind of an honorary grandfather, uh, and he lives in the area still. 
so having people come in and and say and show, hey, a life goes on, obviously, and b here's all the cool stuff. Here's the the portfolio of opportunities available to you, many of which are much harder to do with two legs. Ironically, I right. would have never done Boston Marathon twice as an ABT. I would have never done tough or I probably wouldn't have done a tough motor. I definitely wouldn't have done or had the opportunity to do some of these things and more uh, if it weren't for my unique situation now as a, as a combat wounded amputee. So uh, it's definitely opened the door to a lot of interesting things, which my policy is to say yes to all of them <laughs> and see where it takes me. And and obviously it's it's only led to very interesting, really unique opportunities. And so if I could then use that to kind of do the same thing for anybody listening to this or anybody seeing the photos that we put up on, on social media or reading any of the articles to see somebody who looks like them with one leg missing, uh, going out and, and doing crazy things. If that can motivate even just one or two people to go off and do something similar or, or comparable, uh, and change their life in really interesting ways and make it more interesting and more, uh, meaningful then that's a win, I think. Uh, that means that means we succeeded. So, yeah, it, it, essentially to show that disability in the 21st century is not what most of us with 20th century conditioning think it is. Right. Uh, when you look at somebody like me and, and all the people we, we know from Disabled Sports USA and Warfighter Sports in particular, that people like us would have been on the streets begging 100 years ago. Uh, and now... Thanks to modern technology and, and just different attitudes, we are out <laughs> going to the South Pole. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I want to get into, you know, obviously the actual expedition, you know, kind of um, what you did on a daily basis and, um, you know, uh, kind of what you saw, what you experienced, what you thought about. But I also would like to, you know, for the listeners um, to talk a little bit about maybe your experience how it could have been, how it could differ from maybe someone who didn't have an amputation. So, what were the things that you had, additional things that you, know, you had to think about or, or focus on? So, let's let's start with the the former and just talk about the expedition and kind of uh, walk walk us through, you know, what you did uh, yeah. to to reach that uh, to reach the South Pole. So, timeline was yeah. He he approached me November 2018. Uh, two seconds later, I said yes. We then began planning prep, all the logistics that go into it, uh, because it's actually quite a bit. Just mm -hmm. even just the, the the air travel going like all the way down to the southern tip of South America. So there was that. There was, as I mentioned before, just acquiring all this very specialized gear, uh, because gear down there is is the big difference between life and death. It's not how how fit you are. It's not your attitude, although attitude is huge, but. It's do you have the right stuff? Because if not, you're gonna freeze to death or or lose appendages. Um, and it was that. It was physical prep, um, meeting the rest of the team via email. It was it was all kinds of little things. And then skipping ahead, November and December. It was it was the last weekend in November uh, and into December. Myself and uh, two other teammates that I would I would also uh, be skiing with had the opportunity to go and train with some crazy Norwegians in a, a town called, or near a town called Finsa in Norway. And Finsa 
is famous for for two reasons. One, it was where uh, they filmed the the Battle of Hoth from Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> which is really cool. So the big ice battle in in the the second film, but also uh, where Shackleton and uh, Nansen and various other legendary polar explorers have have trained as well. I think also Scott Robert Falcon Scott mm. potentially, and so it's a great environment. There's a big frozen lake. It simulates the conditions in the center of Antarctica. So we got to test out our gear. We got to get more used to, to Nordic skiing while towing, towing our, uh, all our gear behind us. Uh, and, and everything that goes into it, even, even camp life, setting up tents, all that, uh, especially setting up tents when your hands are freezing and you can't feel every little thing that you need to feel. And you got big beefy gloves on, so you don't have the same art, uh, dexterity, things like that, that mm-hmm. you just get used to um, in the wind and in the, in the cold. And we had a great training session there uh, with a company called Your Way, uh, run by a, a guy who's actually uh, ex-Norwegian Special Forces. Mm. So the right kind of guy to, to train us in those mm-hmm. conditions. Um, Indeed. We ended up skiing uh, later with one of his colleagues, Katinka, who uh, helps run the company, and she was one of the, the participants in the last 300, which is what Rob was in before he was injured. So uh, the last 300 nautical miles into the pole. Um, anyways, great training there. And then uh, got a little bit more training, actually, in Breckenridge, as you recall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Disabled Sports USA helped me log a few extra miles uh, <laughs> out there at altitude, which is key. And um, got... Yeah, basically just got more experience towing a load. Um, we stole some some big industrial-sized uh, cans of vegetables and stuff from their, their kitchen at the Nordic Center and, and loaded those in uh, for the extra weight and uh, towed that around for half a day. And then, um, yeah, then the expedition, we, we left and got to Chile. Uh, I got there on the 31st of December, got to celebrate New Year's there. And then... And this kind is, of a cool place to celebrate New yeah, Year's. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, also... A, one of the most southernmost cities in the world is called mm-hmm. Punta Arenas, or Punta Arenas. It's it's Sandy Point, uh, and we were there for a few days, staging, prepping, um, doing gear checks, and and all the the last minute prep. Because all that is essential. If you if you're missing even one set of gloves, that could mean the difference between um, frost nip or frostbite or perfectly normal expedition. So all that uh, in Chile, and then we left on the. Th- third or fourth to uh fly from from there to union glacier in antarctica then we're there staging for another few days waiting for a clear window to fly to our insertion point at 89 south and clear window you mean obviously weather weather contingent right yeah um so some people could stay you know maybe multiple days it's it's super variable Mm -hmm. and just there's no radar there's no there's no uh, ground control there's Mm -hmm. it's these these dudes from northern Canada who are bush pilots who uh, if they can see they can drop you there if they can't see you get delayed so we we ended up getting delayed the day we we're going to be inserted uh, or linking up with the last three hundred people uh, at eighty nine degrees south and we ended up flying at about ten something p.m. we landed at one something a.m. broad daylight obviously uh, and yeah they they just land anywhere they got skids on these planes so. Uh, we we landed right next to where they were camping and um, where the the last 300 team was camped and we linked up with them and that began 
the the well eight days total of skiing mm. uh, to the South Pole, which I think you had asked about. Did I listen to anything? Did I did mm-hmm. I do podcast? No, I was just skiing and observing and thinking. Yeah, well, so if um, you don't time to if, think if you don't have any music and, or or anything to listen to, most people did. Uh, yeah, and so most people did. But so since you didn't, you know, you you have you're alone with your thoughts. This is probably heretical and, while being interviewed on a podcast to say I didn't listen to any podcasts, <laughs> but I didn't listen to anything. Um, no audiobooks, no podcasts. Most people did just because that's normal. And I'm not. helps pass the time um, away, right? <laughs> For most people. Yeah, and it's useful. And I I, I almost did a few times, but. Uh, I think it was useful just to, to reflect and you only get to do this once in a lifetime potentially. So I was just taking it all in and, and the more you, I was, I was spotting other teams way off in the distance every mm-hmm. once in a while. Cause you, there were other, t- other teams there or solo skiers, uh, coming in from the coast trying to set a record or something. Excuse me. Um, so I would occupy myself with that and, uh, I think I have a, I have a wedding coming up in June. So I was visualizing kind of everything from start to finish to see, okay, what am I forgetting uh, in terms of planning? I was going to ask you, what, what did your, what were you thinking about? What, what, I mean, what were the thoughts that came through? Cause if you have that, that much time, you know, there's, I imagine all kinds of thoughts that would yeah. pop into your you head. Have, you have many hours to think, but it was, it was stuff like that. Uh, obviously the, the food fantasies, like you, you fantasize about what you're going to eat when you get back. And that's pretty common. <laughs> um, but like, I think Rob might've mentioned it earlier. You just kind of think about the next leg. If you mm-hmm. think too far ahead, you obviously visualize the finish line, so to speak, because that helps motivate you. But otherwise each day you're just kind of, okay, go the next hour, go the next hour, go the next hour. Um, and you, you divide things up into little chunks and that helps mentally. I, I think, and I, th- I think it's a successful technique he uses and many other people who do this, uh, will employ. So that, that I think was the most useful um, yeah, you know, just plenty of time to observe. Yeah. The cool thing too is the more you observe and take it in, the more you observe, or the more you can recognize all the cool little phenomena that you otherwise wouldn't mm-hmm. see potentially if you're if you're just skiing along and listening to something. Where even just the the way the sun was reflecting off the snow, it was it was like millions of little stars. Seeing the wind blow ice crystals in front of you, and especially silhouetted against the deep blue sky, you can see them better. But it looks like little mini shooting stars, but but thousands of them. Um, it's like a meteor shower on, on, mm. on speed. So it's uh, almost like seeing these little miracles or little yeah. things that you would never. And I, be I able to sh- showed a photo actually you saw, uh, just a little while ago when we were having lunch of what looked like a sunrise because the sun was kind of projecting. I'm glad the camera caught it, but the sun kind of projected in such a way that not projected, but it, it reflected or refracted or something through the ice crystals mm-hmm. down near the ground. And so it looked like the sun was rising way behind us it from did, the direction yeah. we came. Um, when in fact, I would say the sun was in the exact same spot high up in the sky that it had been for 24 hours. So things like that, um, I kind of loved just occupying my mind with. But we also had a few snow quakes, which were really cool. Uh, one, one that was actually So what's pretty, a snow quake? <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. it. It feels like an earthquake. It doesn't feel like an earthquake. It sounds like an earthquake. Okay. We had one, actually, our guide who's done this for 10 seasons or something, he said that's the loudest he's ever heard one. So it was uh-huh. kind of cool. Uh, it went right under us. That one felt or hurt, sounded like a, a train hmm. coming, and it was like directional. It started the Doppler effect, what do they call it, where it starts here and then ends over here, and uh, a little bit of distortion, but it was really cool. So we had we had a number of those. So a typical day, I know you've, you've talked about... Um was essentially like 50 minutes of trekking, you know, and, and skiing. 
and then a 10 minute break. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, kind of continuing that pattern for seven or more, you know, seven or eight hours or so yes. on a given day. Um, obviously the breaks were important, uh, you know, either to rest, but also mm-hmm. to take a, take in some much needed protein and calories, and calories or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Calorie dense, everything. And, uh, and a lot of water cause it's, it's technically a desert, um, in terms of precipitation amounts and, and it's super low humidity. So you gotta, you gotta drink a lot, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, that's pretty it, pretty much it. It was quite monotonous, but, uh, every day you're getting closer and you get more excited. And then two days out, you can see the pole from, I think 15 nautical miles mm. out, which is again, still two days worth of skiing, but it was uh, pretty motivating, especially cause uh, the last two days were pretty rough on my uh, residual limb or stump, mm-hmm. uh, I guess is the, the, the slang. Uh, just because of the activity, but also because of the temperature. Because everything distal or below uh, where that leg ends is, is metal. And so that obviously was room temperature, so to speak. And that was negative five-ish Fahrenheit ambient uh, temperature. And the wind, I think uh, we mentioned it earlier, the wind chills got down to negative 40, which is where Celsius and Fahrenheit meet up. And so that bottom part of my stump was pretty pretty damn cold by the end of it, um, no matter how much I would warm it up. And led to some swelling issues. It, it also calcified, which I'd never felt before. Oh, really? It hardened up to the point that I was like, I really don't want to have to get medevac. That would be, that would be mm-hmm. a real bummer, especially this close. Um, so I would kind of massage it and palpate it and, and just try to keep it loose. But um, the good thing, though, is that all that really severe stuff in terms of pain and discomfort and swelling and uh, got so bad, actually, that the last morning when we were just doing the last few nautical miles of the pole, uh, I couldn't get my leg on. I couldn't fit my, my leg in the socket that it needs to go in. So I had to stand up and just use my body weight to force it in because I'm not going to... I'm, I'm never going to let myself be that person that, that slows the team down. And the good thing is that all that, all that happened within the last two days. Mm-hmm. And so, um, better obviously than say day two or something. And you can see the pole. And I was so say the finish line was inside, right? The finish line is literally, yeah. The research station is, is right there. The Amundsen Scott station. And, um, yeah, there was no excuse <laughs> at that point. Um, so yeah, that was that was a huge motivating or driving factor to, to get there, despite so, all the all the ways my body started failing me hmm. in in the last few days. So obviously, once you reached the South Pole, you know uh, what? How did you how did you take uh, how did you reflect upon that moment? It's surreal, I guess, just because you've seen pictures. I mean, everybody's seen say photos in, in National Geographic or now on the internet somewhere. Or, seen a documentary maybe but it's it's certainly surreal standing there and hearing the flags at the ceremonial pole uh flutter in the wind but it's it's humbling just because you are especially when you're at the actual geographic pole about 100 meters from the ceremonial pole you are then standing uh on our home planet at the exact point where our rotational axis pokes up through the surface uh and so just taking that and letting it kind of detonate inside your brain is, is just mm-hmm. the coolest, uh, coolest experience and, and holding your GPS, for example, uh, which we're extraordinarily privileged to have compared to say people in the 
early 20th century True. <laughs> uh, doing this exact same thing, but with, with skins and definitely no GPSs. But holding the GPS and seeing it read exactly 90 degrees and 0, 0, 0, 0 is definitely one of the coolest experiences. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's peaceful. It's humbling. It's, it's still very surreal. It hasn't really set in yet, even two and a half weeks later. Um, but it, it's a great reminder, and I'm going to dovetail with kind of Rob's mission in saying this, but it's a great reminder that the poles, especially the South Pole, are places of just science, exploration, and actual, tangible international cooperation. And, and they absolutely need to stay that way. Uh, and being there and the immediacy of that fact uh, definitely resonates. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a great reminder for anybody that goes there or get, even gets to see it or gets to listen to this or anything. Like, just this is optimal. Uh, it's the only continent that's never seen war. And as a, as a veteran who, who literally every, every day of my life I carry evidence of the ugliness of war mm-hmm. on my body and, and people out in public because I always wore shorts, they see that when they see my, my metal and my carbon fiber. Uh, and so to, to be on a continent that's never seen war, never been polluted by, by all of our human problems, and to have it be a place of adventure and exploration and science that's i think that's a pretty pretty unique opportunity yeah it's such a good uh, such a good point too i mean it truly is a peaceful place Mm -hmm. and it's as rob alluded to it's also it's trying to kill you at all times which is also (laughs) it's kind of cool because there are a few places on earth as we are you could call us apex predators or top of the food chain or whatever Mm -hmm. like we are uh very rarely at least in, in like North America, for example, very rarely preyed upon by other other uh, mammals, and we are very rarely in danger of dying just by being in, in a spot, mm-hmm. being in a, in a location on Earth. Element, so, elements or nature, yes. Yeah, and so uh, to be in a place, one of those few places left on Earth where you can't get to McDonald's within a few miles <laughs> to quench your thirst or have a hamburger or something, um, is just kind of yeah, I, I love that. So for you, and, and uh, Rob alluded to this obviously. So for you, you kind of had a, a dual purpose and and focus of this mission. Mm-hmm. Part was you know to kind of shed light on on what Rob and his foundation is trying to do, but you also wanted to, and you alluded to this a little bit more, but I wanted you to kind of expand on it, on the idea of uh, kind of. Uh, re-centering uh, what disability is. So can you talk about, you know, can maybe, you know, your purpose or intent uh, to go and accomplish something like this, you know, with that focus? Well, I think, I mean, you, you've seen it too. Uh, I obviously, until I became a disabled American back in 2011, I didn't have much exposure to just what was achievable uh, with uh, everything. I mean, not just with modern prosthetics, but say people with cerebral palsy, down syndrome, all, like groups like Disabled Sports USA, uh, getting people of all different quote unquote disabilities out there, for me was kind of seeing that for the first time was was definitely kind of eye opening. Even though it was seeing it through the lens of somebody who was also, me being also uh, newly disabled, so to speak, uh, was pretty rev. What's the word? Revelationary. No, that's revolutionary. Well, well, yeah, it, could be <laughs> it was revolutionary. it was a revelation, and uh, I and many other people 
didn't know about that and didn't know their range of opportunities. And so to help promote that and to help showcase that, that range and that spectrum, this was just one little blip on that, on that uh, spectrum. And I hope that in doing it, it was, I mean, it was obviously the personal challenge, um, but mm-hmm. hopefully it, it registers in that logbook of achievements by by people with disabilities, quote unquote. And you look at, uh, we were just talking about Kirsty Ennis, for example. She's her, her amputation is even worse, if you want to call it that, in terms of being above the knee. In that, I still have my knee, and I'm I'm essentially a paper cut. But somebody like that doing Everest, <laughs> mm. things like that, is just mind blowing. And the more we can communicate that to the rest of the world, not just our country, but the rest of the world, uh, and be ambassadors for disability and to show that it's only what you make it. Like it, you, you can be limited. We all know people. I, I knew people from the hospital that absolutely let it get to them. And I guarantee you those guys are, are sitting on their couch and, and not living the life they could be living because they let it, mm-hmm. uh, limit them. They let, they let themselves be defined and limited and, I think Disabled Sports USA and everything we're doing through this is, is all about taking those expectations and, and limitations and trashing them and saying, yeah, no, that's not for us. And you definitely did. I mean, I know that you kind of got your start with us, mm-hmm. at least, um, by oh, yeah, by snowboarding two months after you had your leg well, No, that was eight months. Or, but oh, yeah, it, okay. was, it was early, yeah. Uh, December 2011 was yeah my first event with Disabled Sports USA and it was the the Ski Spectacular right hosted by the Hartford out in uh, in Breckenridge, and that was yeah that was something I had enjoyed as a kid, uh, as a teenager and a young adult before going off to the army and then I was off in places that don't have mountains, uh, but uh, or not ones you can ski at least but we I'd grown up doing that and to be able to do that again was a, a big realization for me especially within that first year as an amputee of oh the things I used to do as a kid I can still enjoy now like uh, not long after that I was doing some mm-hmm. adaptive soccer and stuff that I grew up doing um, so to to have that then serve as a springboard was huge because that launched me or that gave me the confidence to launch into other stuff and then just a few months later I was going on the expedition with Rob Swan um, I was running the Boston Marathon a month after that for the first time, slowly, but I ran it. Um, then I did that again two years <laughs> later, and, and just it, it was a huge essential confidence boost early on, which I think everybody needs. Uh, everybody needs to start small, get that little hook, and or get hooked. Or even get over the first hurdle or the first hump, The first right? hurdles, yeah. yeah it's, there's all kinds of different analogies or, or metaphors we could use, but that's a, that's a great one to – to get addicted and then to just keep doing stuff to, to push yourself, challenge yourself, keep kind of raising the bar. And it's surprisingly easy, I think for most people to, to keep hitting those goals. And, um, I think, I think that's essential for recovery. Uh, or, or not even if you're, if you're, if it's a congenital mm-hmm. disability, so to speak, uh, same thing. You don't even mm-hmm. have to be, it doesn't have to be adult onset. Like we refer to, to our injuries. Right. Um, even even still, it can be useful in your recovery because uh, some people take it takes longer sometimes, especially considering the severity of, of some of the amputations that I saw at Walter Reed or um, people we know who've been in car accidents and all kinds of stuff. So mentally and emotionally and, and psychologically, it's it's huge. 
just yeah. to to start doing a little bit, to get hooked and to keep doing more and to keep smashing those those targets and, and say, oh yeah, no, this is doable. And it's like what we talk about with Disabled Sports USA is if I can do this, I can do anything. And also kind of uh, a permutation of that, which is if I can do this, what's next? Right. And everybody's <laughs> always asking me that. No, what's next? Yeah, what's next? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I won't ask you that. <laughs> yeah. But it's that concept of, all right, what's the next challenge? Well, you know, uh, thank you for obviously sharing your uh, story and your, your experience with uh, this expedition. You, you know, it's, you truly are, you know, 1% of 1% of 1%. I mean, I, the, the, the amount of people that really get to see and reach the South Pole is just, you know, s- very small, minute percentage of, of, you know, our globe's population. So that's just pretty cool to, to be able to ha- uh, be able to talk a little bit about that today. Yeah. So thank you for thank you for being my guest today. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. <laughs>